This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hallo, hier ist eine Nachricht von Hannah und Natascha, die Co-Moderatoren des LUK Podcasts Why I Move in Partnerschaft mit Nike. Wir machen eine Pause von unseren alltäglichen L-Rollen, um mit ein paar unglaublichen Frauen von Filmstars bis hin zu Modeikonen darüber zu sprechen, wie sie Bewegung in ihren wahnsinnig hektischen Alltag einbauen und vor allem, wie sie sich dabei fühlen. Außerdem werden wir von Nike-Coaches und Trainern hören, die ihre Expertentipps dazu geben, wie jeder Bewegung in sein Leben einbinden kann. Ich habe ein gutes Gefühl. Ich auch. Why I Move in Kooperation mit Nike. Jetzt anhören. BBC Sounds. Music, Radio, Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. In 1016, a Danish prince called Canute became King of England. He inherited a kingdom in a sorry state. The north and east coasts had been harried by Viking raiders, and his predecessor, King Ethelred II, had struggled to maintain order among the Anglo-Saxon nobility. Canute proved to be a skilful ruler. Not only did he bring stability and order to the kingdom, he exported the Anglo-Saxon style of centralised government to Denmark. Under Canute, England became the cosmopolitan centre of a multinational North Atlantic empire and a major player in European politics. With me to discuss King Canute are Erin Goris, Associate Professor of Old Norse Language and Literature at University College London, Pragya Bora, Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of York, and Elizabeth Tyler, Professor of Medieval Literature and Co-Director of the Centre for Medieval Studies at the University of York. Elizabeth Tyler. Canute was born in Denmark in around 994. Can you give us some idea of the map of Europe at that time? Western Europe is dominated by the German Empire at this point, which stretches really north, south, east and west, connecting everybody. So in the north it borders on Denmark, in the west on what becomes France, and it stretches as far south as Rome and south of Rome. In the east it's interacting with the Slavic peoples. And then... There's West Francia, which is what becomes France. And then we have England off to the side, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. And at just this point too, Scandinavian peoples are slowly moving towards having more consolidated kingdoms. And the raids that are happening from Scandinavia are being led by figures who are, they're not just warlords anymore, they're heading toward kings. The Scandinavians had been bothering around the east coast of England for a long time. Mm. New York at one stage was arguably the biggest city in Scandinavia yeah, uh, and absolutely. so on. So this wasn't new. It's not new, but it's renewed. It's less raids and departure and more something heading towards the takeover of England. And it's very well organised. And the, the way this United Kingdom of England is structured means that taxes can be readily um, collected and paid to the Danes. So that's one of the attractions. The bureaucratic centralization of England makes it particularly attractive. Erin, what do we know about uh, Knut's family and his early life? Knut's father was the King of Denmark, Svein Forkbeard, the Old Norse uh, Svein Tugjuskek. His mother, we don't know her name. She was a Polish princess, sister of King Boleslav of Poland. Knut was probably the youngest of two sons. He had an older brother, Haraldur, and at least two sisters, possibly a few more. And this was also the time where royal people, elite men, uh, had multiple relationships with multiple women. So there were probably half-sisters and half-brothers in the mix there. And this was very much an up-and-coming family. Elizabeth talked about the consolidation of power that was going on in Scandinavia at this time. And Canute was from one of those consolidating families. His grandfather, Harold uh, Bluetooth Gormson, famously uh, was the one who erected the Yelling Stone and, as is inscribed on this monument, made the Danes Christian. So this was a family that was very into exerting power and control over an expanding kingdom. And perhaps this goes to the point of why were they looking mm. to England as well. How deep was the Christianity with him then? 
And with, how rare was it? With Canute, mm. it was fairly deep. Canute and his father and his grandfather were Christian. Harolder, the grandfather, was the one who converted, and it was very much part of his sort of personal brand that he made the Danes Christian. Svein was, was as well. Canute would have been raised Christian, but Christianity was not probably the religion of everybody in Denmark at this time. The Christianization of Scandinavia was very much a top-down kind of process. And so people in Knut's retinue, for example, could have been Christian, they might have had slightly pagan leanings, or they might have been a sort of hybrid uh, in between. And that probably went for many of the people in Denmark, and indeed in quite a lot of Scandinavia at that time. He came in 1012 to to England with his father, Mm -hmm. um, Svein Forkbeard. I like these Forkbeards and Bluetooths and that all over the place. Um, Anyway, he came there to conquer England. What, in your view, Mm. was a lure? One of the perhaps most exciting reasons is that the sister of Svein Forkbeard, Gunnhildr, was killed uh, scandalously and in, in quite a kind of homicidal frenzy that erupted in England called the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. This was in the year 1002. Ethelred, for various reasons, heard that the Danes in England were planning to kill him and he ordered the, the killing of all the day of the Danes in England. We don't really know what he meant by this. We, we don't know exactly who was killed or how many were killed. But later, medieval historians at least uh, chronicled this event as a great massacre. Women were buried in the earth and dogs were set on them, ripping their breasts off. Children were dashed against posts. And among the slain was allegedly Svein's sister. So one of the reasons is offered as is revenge. Was this kind of brutal warfare, was that the, the name of the game at that mm, time? That is a 12th century chronicle, <laughs> which I'm adding for a little bit of local colour. The fact that this chronicler is making such a big deal of it suggests that perhaps this is unusual and this is something to comment on. We have found bodies in Oxford, for example, of Danes who appear to have been decapitated or wounded or killed in ways that might have been part of the St. Bryce's Day massacre, but it was very unusual, particularly for something like England. So it was a revenge expedition? It probably wasn't, let's be honest. Those were the stories that were told afterwards. Sources closer to the time, like the uh, text commissioned by Knut's widow, Queen Emma, talk about Svein coming over to keep in check some of those Viking warlords who were making a very good living plundering England and accruing wealth and status by plundering, by becoming allies or sometimes not switching sides with the king, King Ethelred. And so they argue, well, these other warlords are doing really well. We need to go in and make sure we have a a piece of that action. Or, of course, if there's a bunch of Scandinavian warlords getting all the wealth and status in England, they could come back to Denmark and they would pose a real threat to Svein and to the other warlords in Scandinavia. Thank you. Pragya, England was ruled, we've heard a few uh, remarks about Ethelred II at the time. Who was he and how stable was his rule? Ethelred II, he's generally known as Ethelred the Unready, which is a slightly unfortunate nickname given to him. Um, Why is it unfortunate? Because in many respects, Ethelred was actually not a bad king. It just so happens that he his moment in history is difficult in a way that perhaps other Anglo-Saxon kings who are, who are his, his predecessors did not have to face the kind of threats because of and these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the threats and challenges is definitely the renewed Viking raids around the sort of 960s and then building into the 990s and the turn of the millennium. Ethelred belongs to the line of Wessex that starts with King Alfred. So it's a it's a long established dynasty of rulers in England. He inherits a strong and prosperous kingdom. And um, when Sven and Knut turn up, Ethelred is in a slightly difficult position with his own earls in England. He really does need to rise to the challenge that is posed by these Viking raids that are taking place and the ones that especially the ones that are headed up by Sven and Knut. And so 
one of the things Ethelred does is he tries to take the easy way out. He tries to pay off the Vikings. It becomes one of his policies, the policy of Danegeld. Pay off the Danegeld. Um, yes, in- indeed. Um, and you so, shall never get rid of the Dane. You, you, well, as, as it turns out, he, he, it, it was not the greatest idea in the world because the more he, he pressured his populace to raise taxes in order to pay the Danegeld, the more the Danes came back for more, but it also fomented unrest in England itself among his own nobles, his own nobility. And so Ethelred finds himself in this really difficult position where he's got his own people to appease, but he's also trying to sort out these Scandinavians coming over who are demanding greater amounts of wealth. It's a rock and a hard place situation for Ethelred, and he do, he ends up not dealing with it very well. One of the not dealing with it very well symptoms really is um, what Erin mentioned earlier, the, the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, where you can almost picture Ethelred sort of just throwing his hands up in the air and going, just kill them all, just just get rid of them. You know, the, the sort of, the, the much later, who will rid me of this tur- these turbulent priests sort of situation. At one point, Ethelred also ends up not directly challenged by, but in conflict with his own son, uh, Edmund Ironside. So it's not a happy place. Ethel, no, we haven't caught. had a, much of a twinkle so far, really, have we? <laughs> anyway, let, let, let's proceed. Elizabeth, Kenneth married his first wife, uh, a woman from Northampton, well-born, mm. wealthy, before he became king. Who was she, and why do you can you think she was good for him? She was good for him. This follows on nicely from what Pragya was saying about the tension between Ethelred and his high elite nobility. So she, Elfgifu of Northampton, is a member of one of these elite families. And she brings valuable support to Canute in the north and in the Midlands as he's trying to gain control. So it's precisely his ability to get in there. And he has two children with her, one named Svein, one named Harold, so named after his grandfather and his father. She doesn't become his queen, that's Emma of Normandy, but she's not sidelined. She becomes regent with Harold, with Svein in Norway. Does she become his wife? Hmm. She is his, well, how do we define wife? Emma would well, say she was his... you generally go to church and you marry each other. Yeah, so you no, but that, no, marriage, marriage, no, marriage was, that you need a whole other program on marriage in okay. this period. So part yeah, yeah. of, okay. part of I, our I summarised it inaccurately and crudely, yeah. but did she become his wife? Yeah, in yeah, effect? yeah, no, she was, right. she yeah. has the status of his wife and her children have the, are throne worthy even though Emma later will tell salacious stories about her, that she was his concubine and that, in fact, her sons weren't even, not only weren't even Canute's sons, they weren't even her own sons. Erin, did this help him to come to the throne? Marrying Alfgifu? Well, not on its own, really, no. Mm. So Svein was very briefly king, or at least in a position that was effectively king, but then he died. And the English sort of invited Ethelred back. Ethelred had fled uh, to Normandy with his wife, Emma of Normandy, and his children. So some of England supported Ethelred, some of them pledged allegiance to Knut, Svein's son. But when Ethelred came back, Knut effectively had to leave. He was sort of expelled. He ran back to Denmark. So it didn't work at that moment. Knut ran back to Denmark. He did. He did. And he took his ships and he went back to Denmark. Unfortunately, or fortunately, um, there was already a king in Denmark, his brother, his older brother, Haraldur. Knut asked very politely, I'm sure, if Haraldur would perhaps share the kingdom of Denmark with him. And Haraldur said no. So Knut rallied the troops, collected another big force, getting different leaders together, the support of mercenaries and different allies, and he launched what was effectively a second invasion. So Svein invaded and became king. Knut then had to invade again and really become king under his own sails, as it were. What Um, date was that? um, He appeared off the south coast in the autumn of 1015. He he ravaged the land, he went in, he was harrying through Dorset, Wiltshire, Somerset. He got allegiance from various important English noblemen, most importantly Eadrich Streona, who's a sort of uh, serial traitor to all sides at this time. But he went in for Knut. Knut got allegiance in the north as well. And during this time, Ethelred's health 
was failing. Edmund was really leading... The son. The, the son, Edmund yeah. Ironstein, was really leading the resistance at this point. Ethelred died in the spring, in April 1016. He Edmund, died or was murdered? Oh, well, that's the question about Edmund. <laughs> yes. I have another salacious 12th century story. Question through that this. is. That's the constant Ethelred was an older man by this mm. point. He'd had a very stressful life, let's <laughs> be honest. He died in the spring, probably of natural causes. Edmund, this mm. is an excellent question, there was a series of battles. Knut and Edmund's forces finally met in October, 18th of October, 1016. The Scandinavian forces had losses, but they basically won. But the situation was a bit complicated, so there was a treaty. There was a treaty between Edmund and Knut. Each promised to become the other's heir. So if one died, the other would inherit his bit of the country. They divided up the country. And then the question of was he murdered? Well, a few weeks after this, at the end of November, Edmund died. Very conveniently. Was he murdered? We are not sure, but there are many wonderful rumours told about what might have happened to him. Not so much in contemporary sources, but in fairly near contemporary sources. It, it was a very convenient death. When we get to something like the 12th century, if we go back to Henry of Huntingdon, mm. he tells a wonderful story about how this, this serial traitor, Eadric Streona, he's this kind of comedy villain of the 11th century. So he is blamed for Edmund's death. So Eadric's son uh, goes to Oxford, which is where the peace treaty was made between Edmund and Knut, and he hides in the privy. So he hides under the toilet in the pit where everything goes. And um, Edmund gets up in the middle of the night, needing to do his business in the privy. He goes, he sits on the privy, and Eadric's son stabs him from underneath. Leaving the knife in his private parts, he runs off into the night. Eadric Streona rides triumphantly to Knut and says, Knut, I've killed Edmund. I am the most loyal and wonderful supporter. And Knut says, mm-hmm, as a reward for your great service, I will make you higher than all other English nobles. So he chops off his head, pops it on a pike, <laughs> and puts it on the highest tower in London. And Knut became king of all England. I'm quite exhausted listening to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Elizabeth, what challenge did, uh, what challenges, no, no, let's go a bit beyond, before that. Praga, often in this conversation, it's, it seems like they said it might have, what sources are you really working from, you three? Oh, wow. Well, the sources uh, for Knut's reign can easily be divided up into three part, depending on where they come from. Um, so we've got sources that are created in, in an English context. There are sources that are created in a continental context, which is everybody else other than the English and the Danes writing about Canute. And then there are sources from a Scandinavian context. None of these sources is particularly comprehensive. England provides the meat of the sources that we've got. Some of them are contemporary sources like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Some are near contemporary, as Erin has mentioned, Anglo-Norman writings, chronicles. Emma of uh, Normandy, after Canute's death, commissions the wonderful Encomium MA, um, which records Canute's life in this beautiful, sort of rosy, pictured way. We've also got uh, administrative sources, letters, charters, writs, everyday administrative documents that nevertheless give us a picture into what's going on in Canute's court, where Canute's favours lie, where his intentions lie, those sorts of things. So the sources are good enough to, to allow you to put together a plausible picture? Yes, they're, they're giving us a plausible picture, but they don't give us the whole picture. Thank you very much. Can we um, talk about Canute? He reigned for 16 years, we're told. What, what I've got so far is a, a melee of battles and horrible deaths. And massive. So can you just give us an idea how he manoeuvred through those 16 years? Mm. Well, why don't, why don't we begin by looking at how he rules in England, where, first of all, he gets rid of most of the English nobility. Gets rid of meaning... They're killed, they are exiled. Um, well, it's worthwhile yeah, now. Are no, they exactly. killed or are they yes. exiled? Yeah, they yeah. are both killed and exiled. There's lots of them. Yeah. Really, the only one who survives is Erleofin of Mercia. 
And then new Englishmen rise under him. And the most famous of those is Godwin, who is originally an obscure figure. He marries a kinswoman of Canute, and during Canute's reign becomes the most powerful of Canute's earls. And he's going to be one to watch. He matters all the way through to 1066. And he does bring in Danish men to rule in England, but by the 1030s, it's actually Canute's new Englishmen who are ruling, which flags up how one of the reasons he's so successful is that he rules England as an English king. And he also works alongside church statesmen like Wolfstan, who write his law codes. He Which we'll bring in that in now, because he was a Christian, yeah, self-declared Christian. He's a third generation Christian. the Christian church Christian. was powerful. Yeah. He declared himself as a Christian. He went to Rome twice mm. and took spectacular mm. gifts. And it, it's critical to how he rules England. He rules England alongside Archbishop Wolfstan, who writes letters to England when he's not there. He also, he gives gifts to Newminster in Winchester and has beautiful illumination of himself and Emma doing that. He has monasteries built on the sites of key battles. So he knows, you, you could see both in a cynical way, he knows he has to do this, but he's deeply a Christian mm. ruler. So you brought in Emma, it's about time mm. I brought Emma in. Mm. This is his second wife, and he didn't divorce his first wife. He, he was a man of two wives. He was a man we of two wives. We can get away wives. with that, can we? Yes, we, yes. we very much can. And very Emma was a very choice in terms of was, wealth, yes. connections, yeah. Absolutely. person. Absolutely. I mean, she was the Queen of England. So if mm. you want to be the King of England, you might as well marry the Queen. She's the only woman in English history to have married two kings of England because she was the much younger wife of Ethelred the Unready. She was herself Norman, she was born in Normandy, um, and she had come over during this time of unrest, of Viking attacks, very much as part of an alliance between England and Normandy against the Scandinavian raiders. They liked to sort of overwinter in Normandy and use it as a sort of jumping off place to attack England. Initially, she had gone into exile back to Normandy when Svein and Canute, well, first arrived. She probably came back with Ethelred. She was perhaps with him when he died or somewhere in the country. And she was a very, very good match for Canute. She was a few years older than he was. She had also been a foreign noble person who had had to come in, learn about the English language, about the English court, about English political customs. She could help him. And she was really a true partner. You know, in this this picture that Elizabeth mentioned, it's a double portrait. They are both presented together. They are both presented on almost a kind of equal footing. She witnesses his charters. She is also involved in giving money to monasteries, to churches, uh, commissioning literary texts. So they're, they're very much joined in this performance of Christian rulership. Thank you very much. Can, can I, yes, please no. do. One of the other reasons Knut's choice of Emma is, is really key is because of who lies connected to Emma on the other mm. side of the channel. One of the ways in which Knut manages to secure his attack on England in the first place is by making an alliance with Emma's brother in Normandy, almost getting assurance from him that he would not prevent Canute attacking England or come to the aid of Ethelred. Um, so Emma is this, she, she's almost a, a linchpin mm. in this northern world, um, mm. and she connects these three very key powerful parts of the northern world of England, Denmark and Normandy. Mm. While I'm with you, uh, Brian, what, to what extent did Canute's rule follow the uh, pattern set by the early Anglo-Saxon rulers? As, as Elizabeth said, he rules England as an English king. Um, the historian uh, Norman Cantor calls him the most eff effective Anglo-Saxon mm. king, which is <laughs> yeah. very interesting if you think about it, because what it highlights is that Canute is following in the footsteps of his Anglo-Saxon predecessors. He's using the same administrative systems, he's using the same tactics when it comes to dealing with the church, with his nobility. His economics are pretty much the same. He's using the same 
coinage structures, the same economic and monetary structures that already exist in England. He's also issuing laws exactly in the way that Anglo-Saxon kings used to. And in fact, in one of his letters, he, he sort of makes this really rather bold claim that he's an English king and he's ruling the English people as under the laws of King Edgar. So he's completely sort of wiped Ethelred off um, the, the chronology here and he's gone straight back to this time of prosperity under Edgar and what he's saying to the English people is this is what I'm going to bring you back to to that moment of prosperity and of peace and he succeeds and he succeeds very much so Elizabeth in 1018 he inherited the Danish throne so he's mm. got two kingdoms now he's got Denmark and he's yeah. got England how does he manage to keep both going he does that partly by effectively ruling you know, in England as an English king, but drawing on people like Wolfstan and Emma to stand in for him. He does it also by being able in Denmark to rule as more of a warlord king. You know, there he's less, he's less on the top of the pile and more having to deal with other rulers who are not kings but are quite strong uh, alongside him. And I think it's part of his astuteness that he knows and understands deeply how both both systems work so he can he can be in more than one place at a time by understanding how rulership works in both places by deploying family members so he eventually he sends his son Harthacanute to Denmark as a regent. He sends his son Svein to Norway as a regent, along with his mother, Elf Gifu. Talking about uh, Norway, he um, he declared himself to be king of Norway, didn't he? Mm -hmm. In 1027. So that's three gone. How does he manage that? Um, it's a silly question. It's not that silly. If you've got three kingdoms, how do you manage them? Well, he was also very good at navigating Norwegian political mm -hmm. structures. Um, bribery is mm. the short answer bribery. when it comes to Norway. N bribery, oh, absolutely. There's no about that then. <laughs> <laughs> he, basically, there's two powerful, charismatic rulers in Scandinavia at this moment. There's, there's Knut, who's got England and Denmark, but you've also got the king of Norway, Olaver Haraldsson, and he's allied with the king of Sweden. And Olaver is, uh, he's a sort of missionary king. He's trying to extend uh, Christianity throughout Norway, extend his kingdom, and that's a real threat to Knut. And so uh, there's a few skirmishes, there's a battle off southern Sweden, the Battle of Holy River, but the military confrontation between these two sort of axes is inconclusive. So Knut starts bribing the Norwegian noblemen probably those who are already a bit upset with Olaver and his sort of grab on power, he starts bribing them to pledge allegiance to himself, to Knut. Mm. Yeah. He, he does go over to Norway with perhaps 50 ships and he sort of kicks Olaver out of Norway. But even when Olaver stages a comeback, he comes back in 1030, Knut doesn't even have to be there. So strong is the allegiance of these disaffected Norwegian nobles, so much do they like the gifts that Knut has given them, that they kill Olaver kind of all on their own, and Knut becomes king of Norway. I think we see there something in Norway that we've also seen in England, that mm. he's very, very good at coming in and seeing where the internal divisions lie yeah. and capitalising on them. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, uh, so he's got three kingdoms already. And he, what is there anything, any one thing that defines him is his success? He's a chameleon. He's transnational. He's a quintessential migrant mm. who knows exactly how to work in the new place that he finds himself in um, but never loses sight of where he comes from and how he can operate in, in that sphere and very, very modern in a way that we think of as a 20, 20th, 21st century phenomenon but he's doing it in the 11th century. And he connects things up. So in 1018, he gets a huge amount of English tax money, yeah. geld, the last big geld, and he uses it to pay the Danes. So part of what he's able to do is capitalise on all of that control. Mm. Mm. And, and, and he's paying the Danes as well to stay away from England. Yeah. Mm. It's not just 
Mm. Thank you for helping me get England. It's now stay away. Don't mm. tread on my toes. Yeah. And I, I think we also should bring in his southern border. So he has yes. a southern border with the German Empire. Yeah. And you've already mentioned that he attends Conrad II's coronation in Rome as German emperor. And he arranges either there or shortly after for his daughter to marry Conrad's son, Henry. And part of that secures his southern border against the greatest power in Europe. Have we any idea of the number of his forces? We've heard about ships. Do you want to take that on board? In each place that we've seen him, in Norway, in Denmark, and in England, he doesn't have to directly have those troops. He makes alliances with disaffected noblemen who have those kinds of men. In this period, in, in the period that we're talking about, sheer numbers don't really do very much. What matters is tactics. So, um, for example, at the Battle of the Holy River, there's almost a stalemate between the Danes and their allies on one side and the Norwegians and the Swedes on the other. And Knut doesn't have to do very much other than blockade <laughs> the channel that connects the North Sea with the Baltic. The Norwegians and the Swedes are stuck in the Baltic. That's not Mm. a problem for the Swedes, they just go home. But the Norwegians have a massive land journey over brutal, brutal mountainous conditions to go home in winter. (laughs) And it's a very clever tactic. It doesn't directly destroy or affect the troops that he is faced with. He just makes their lives impossible. One thing I picked up on as I was reading for this is he never seems to be lacking in cash or wealth. Mm -hmm. You talked about bribery early on. Mm -hmm. Well, he had the wherewithal all along, didn't he? How does that happen? Well, a lot of that wealth comes out of England. England. And and precisely because England is a particularly well-organised and central kingdom and he can extract taxes... From England. So that's where a lot of his wealth comes from. Um, I mean, the other thing to point out is that England has been, for a very long time, part of an international trading network. Mm. And so goods and and money have been flowing in and out of England for centuries by this point. Mm. England is rich Mm. in a way that Scandinavia really isn't Mm. at this point in time. Um, So England is the prize and England is almost the engine of Knut's Mm. um, economic administration across his North Sea Empire. Can we just talk a little (coughs) bit more about his visit to Rome for the Mm. coronation Mm. of uh, Conrad II as Holy Roman Emperor? What did he get out of that? Well, what did he get out of that? Partly it's about a performance of Christian kingship. So, you know, he's also there in Rome with the Pope. But part of it is, too, building this alliance with Conrad. If you think ahead, if his daughter, his daughter had a daughter with Henry III, and then unfortunately his daughter died. But if she had had a son, you know, what he was looking for was a union between his dynasty in England and Denmark and Conrad's dynasty, which would have made an extraordinarily powerful arc across Europe. Northern Empire. Northern Empire. And I I think one of the things he's also getting in Rome and also by watching Conrad is an interest in what it is what is an empire how do you not only rule over multiple peoples but conceptualize how you rule over multiple people and i think that's where some thinking about empire rather than king is really useful you don't have to say that he's an emperor in order to say that he's learned something from watching essentially watching imperial theory um <laughs> At work. The other thing um, to mention here is that we have hints in the sources of Knut having a role to play in Conrad's election as Holy mm. Roman Emperor as well. Um, More so, bribery. Um, <laughs> there, there's <laughs> certainly <laughs> some, some bribery. Knut is initially not in favour of, of Conrad as the Holy Roman Emperor, and Conrad's deal with Knut really is to bring Knut on side. And one of the reasons Conrad really must bring Knut mm. on side is because Conrad is in conflict with Boleslav um, Mm. in Poland. And as Erin mentioned earlier, Knut is connected by blood to Boleslav. He's his his uncle. And so what Conrad does not need is a Danish problem on on the one side and a Polish one on the other. He sort of makes sure that in return for Knut's support, 
for his becoming mm. the Holy Roman Emperor, he then keeps Knut appeased. Um, and part of that appeasement is settling the issue of the Schleswig-Holstein border. But the other part of the um, appeasement is this this really powerful marriage alliance. Does he have any failures? He seems to go from triumph to triumph. <laughs> here's a king, Skinny. here's another king, there's a third king, Does here's a bad one so all the indications are that he is incredibly mm, very effective. Good at what he, does. Yeah. he thought about how he could brand himself as a king, as a particular kind of ruler, and a really important plank in communicating his royal identity was through his scalds, through his poets. The um, scalds, <clears throat> scald. yes, yeah. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So this is the Old Norse, um, yeah. so the medieval precursor to the modern Scandinavian languages, the, the Old Norse word for poet. And, and for centuries before Knut, at least two centuries, a king or a ruler would have known they'd made it if the skalds, if the poets were coming to their court and praising them in this incredibly complicated poetry. Mm. It, it involves wordplay and complicated meter and alliteration and it's a way of saying this is the best king. And so when Knut was king in England, his court in England, for example, became the centre of Old Norse poetry production in Scandinavia, in, in Europe. Poets were flocking to produce, to compose this poetry at his court, all of it saying, Knut is the top king, Knut is the greatest warrior, Knut rules his nobles just like Christ rules in heaven. These are very strong statements. And of course, these were all in Danish in, in, in Old Norse. So, again, we, we talk about him being a political chameleon. He is also a kind of cultural chameleon in that he could write letters to the English, but he could also commission poets to speak in Old Norse to the Old Norse contingent in his court. This is very much a kind of multilingual, multi-ethnic environment. Did his 16 years change in, England much? In some ways, no, because the structures continue, and after a period of disruption, Edward the Confessor comes to the throne, ruling in those same structures, and in some ways ruling with an Anglo-Danish identity, and his sails are full of Anglo-Danish air as Edward comes to the throne. But I think if we go back to the failure issue, I think the failure is shown by what happens after he dies and you end up with virtual civil war and in too part, many children too many sons by too many mm. different wives and mm. and it doesn't help that Emma has also had sons by two different wives two different husbands. husbands sorry yes <laughs> husbands sorry yes so Emma has has had sons as we know by Ethelred and Canute and Canute has had sons with Elfgifu and with Emma and everybody wants the English throne and so you have five years of turmoil mm. in which every single one of those sons, except Edward the Confessor, ends up dead. And whether they die natural causes or they're killed is um, always up for debate. And vicious, vicious factionalism mm. around that. We get a real insight into that from the life that Emma, in the midst of all of this, Emma commissions what is essentially a gesta of Canute, so his deeds... And she represents him very much as a kind of the creator of a new dynasty. He's a second Aeneas bringing together two people, the English and the Danes. And she even tries to portray Edward the Confessor, so Ethelred's son, as Canute's son. And I think that's really important for showing us actually what Canute did change, that actually there is, while the structures are English, there is a sense in which England realizes actually that they've they've thrived under the Anglo-Danish kings. Um, mm. So that that's how Edward comes to the throne, both as a restoration mm. of the West Saxon dynasty, but not as a break with the Anglo-Danish dynasty. How big a step is it from that, from the, the fractiousness and, and, the, and the Battle of Hastings? 
they're 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 very very intimately connected one of the big changes is the raising of Godwin Godwin is such a key player not just in Knut's own reign Godwin is an important earl in England but he also travels to Denmark with Knut he helps out with the administration of Knut's Danish kingdom as well he's one of those people that is Mm -hmm. um, transnational as well and in the turmoil after Knut's death where we've got all of these sons vying for power. Godwin is a bit of a kingmaker in terms of whom he supports against whom. And he does change sides. He's not entirely loyal to any one person. He's looking out for his own interests, very much so. After Godwin, we then have his son, Harold Godwinson, who similarly tries to broker power in England and in Normandy at the same time and ends up himself as the King of England and then first defending against the Scandinavians um, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge and then defending against the Normans at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. I'm also at a very soft spot for... Godwin, because I think the first book I owned, well, it might not be the very first book, but it had big print and pictures, Tales of Robin Hood, and uh, and his Robin Hood's father was supposed to be Godwin. Godwin. Poor old Godwin and his sons end up uh, in exile so many yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, you can kind of see why yeah, they might be the well. exemplars. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoy that a lot. I hope everybody else did. So, oh yes, there's a big question. <laughs> That's the big question. Come on, then. What about Canute and the waves? Holding back the waves? Showing who could hold back the waves? What was happening? Well, he did he even sit by the sea? Oh, <laughs> just don't spoil everything. Oh, yeah, right. Well, he might have been on the Thames or he might not have done it at all. Um, but as we've been saying, he was a Christian king and he was very good at showing people how good a Christian king he was. So... If we accept that Knut stood by some water and that he Mm. commanded the water not to come towards him, he was, in the earliest sources to talk about this, he was performing his own lack of power Mm. against the sea and therefore against God. And so the stories of... He was showing he didn't have power. He was showing he didn't have power, which, of course, he didn't. But but he was also acknowledging the fact that people knew he had power. Mm but showing its limits, and its yeah. limits were with respect to God. Mm. Um, so Which, was, if you think about it, is, is, is quite a claim. This is me, powerful. Guess who's the only one who's more powerful than me? Mm. God. The big mm. guy up there. Mm. So it's humility, but it's humility also with a bit of showing off mm. oh, quite a bit of showing yeah. off <laughs> and, it, and it ties in and it ties the it, yeah. brand I mean it, mm. again it may or may not have happened yeah. but if so, we think so of, much you've been talking about mm, this morning well then, indeed it? yes. it's the 11th century after all <laughs> but it, it ties in with the skaldic verse yes. which is also saying he is Absolutely. sort of next under God he yep. is like Absolutely. God on earth and with going to Rome mm-hmm. and being next Absolutely. to Conrad yep. next to the Pope he mm. uses every possible kind of cultural trope in his mm. art arsenal to show just how powerful he is after God. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to Elizabeth Tyler, Erin Gores and Pragya Vora and our studio engineer Duncan Hannant. Next week, the Battle of Crecy. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So this is basically where I ask minimal questions and you give uh, magnificent answers and we put it in the podcast. So that, that's what happens. What would you like to talk about that we didn't talk about? We haven't talked about Knut's Danish administration at all. And really, one of the things that I, I love about the way in which Knut operates is that he sees in England this exemplar of mm. administrative structure, of political organisation, of church structure, um, and that's what he wants for his kingdom in Denmark. That's what he wants for his dynasty in Denmark, carrying on from what his grandfather started out with the Christianization of, of Denmark. And so he uses his foothold in England to bring experts over into Denmark, people who can uh, who can mint, people who can teach local lords how to 
work with law codes and administrative structures, people, most importantly, really, clergymen from England who are taken over into Denmark to establish really important Christian centres like Roskilde, like Lund, um, what is now Lund. He shapes Denmark through these influences coming mm. over from England. Um, and, and in many ways, one of, the, one of the advantages of using England to create this sort of new Denmark almost um, is that he removes particularly the Danish church from the influence mm. of the, the archbishops of Hamburg and Bremen. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Adam of Bremen, who is um, one of the contemporary chroniclers that we use, he's very, very upset with Sven and Knut both. He doesn't like them very much. Um, but we've got this this wonderful centralised structure in so many different respects being created in in, in Denmark out of what Knut gets, what he learns from England. It's tr- it truly ties together his, his northern empire um, in many ways. Um, and I think that's absolutely extraordinary that he, can, that he can do that. I think it's really interesting that you flag up the way he's trying to kind of curtail the influence from the German yes. empire. And at the same time, in England, he's bringing it in yes. because one of the things he does is he brings German imperial clerics into the court and then makes them bishops, um, which is a policy that continues under Edward the Confessor's reign. So we've been talking earlier about how important bishops are to the running of a kingdom. So on the one hand, you see in Denmark, he's pushing the Germans back and bringing the English in, whereas in England, he's pushing the English back Mm. and bringing the Germans in. So he's always, you know, he's, he's got these policies of learning from other places, of bringing foreigners in, to systems that are already there, which he still makes those systems work, but he puts new people in them. And he's constantly learning from other places. Yeah, it's truly pan-European. And possibly, I mean, he's a very, very young man. I mean, he's a teenager when he comes over with Svein. He's perhaps even a teenager when he becomes king of England. So, I mean, he is very much in that stage Mm. of life where he is learning, he is studying, he is looking to Mm. people who are kind of older and wiser. And and he really does learn from so, so many Mm. people. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other thing, sort of, just since we were talking about deaths, um, one of the things that comes up in terms of Knut's legacy and why it doesn't really last very much um, is the early deaths of pretty yeah. much his entire dynasty. Yeah. Um, all of his children die before they reach the age of about 25. Is he, that murder or natural? Um, as far as... Uh, well, um, combination. Combination, combination. <laughs> possibly of the two. Um, but it, if, if we think about... Um, some historians have suggested that um, there might be a genetic component to these early deaths because mm-hmm. uh, his father himself only lasted till about 40. Um, Knut was roughly about 45, possibly the longest lived, lived of, the, of, of the whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. But his children, not, not a single one sees 25. Um, so these, these are very short-lived people. And, and so you, I suppose you can think about a genetic component to the way in which their their lives are cut short. And so w- what we don't get is this long-lasting dynasty, because everybody who belongs to that dynasty right. ends up dead. Mm. Mm. Um, and and it, it does, I mean... But it, none of them have his... his no. They, might no. they have, might they have yeah. learned if they'd lived yeah. beyond their 20s? <laughs> or that's, that's how Knut lived beyond his 20s. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, they had some very powerful mothers there, kind yeah. of using them as yes. absolutely pawns. Yes, yeah. It's a time when the church is pressing for monogamy. Did yeah. it bother anybody that he had two wives? Mm. Bothered them, I suppose. Yeah, bothered yeah. them. <laughs> I think it's real. I think that's a spot where you see Wolfstan is mm. very, very discreet because Wolfstan mm. is someone who really is pushing for this monogamy, yeah. and he's not even pushing. He's even hostile to serial monogamy. Mm. But he's quiet um, around this issue and Canute. Um, And I sometimes wonder, there's a wonderful old English translation of an ancient, uh, late antique romance called Apollonius of Tyre, Mm. which is all about constancy in marriage 
and you will be able to put together all of these kingdoms and everything will turn out happily ever after. And that occurs in a manuscript alongside some of Knut's law codes. I wonder if something like <coughs> Apollonius of Tyre was a subtle way of, of making those points mm. in that context. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of text, Apollonius of Tyre, comes in alongside things like skaldic verse. Yeah. So the literary culture of his court, I think, was, was really rich and complicated. And I think Wolfstein was very shrewd mm. in how he addressed just those issues, because they're burning issues at this point. Yeah. Mm. Could I just bring up on the Danish side. Um, Emma was also Danish. Yes. Her mother yeah, was Danish, Danish. Gunnar. Yeah. Yeah. So she probably understood Danish, yeah. speaking mm. up, if uh, growing up, if not spoke it. And I think she's a nice reminder mm. of just how connected mm. all these players are. And that does follow through to 1066. Yeah. So she's Emma of Normandy. Normandy is the land of the North men, the Northmen, men from the North. Um, and so when we have Knut from Denmark, um, Emma, who is half Danish and also from this kind of land which was settled by Norman raiders and settlers, and then we have the kind of Anglo-Danish environment in England, and then we've got the Norwegians sort mm -hmm. of getting involved through kinship networks as well, everyone's related. Mm -hmm. Some of that is deliberate, political kind of machinations, but everyone is related. And so when we get to something like these invasions and then 1066, it's very much not a sense of a kind of foreign invading army mm. coming mm. in and taking over us. You know, this is very much a kind of quarrel within families throughout mm. kind of the, the northern part of Europe. And I think those kind of close relationships between these different peoples is often lost when people mm. think about this yeah. period. But actually, it, these lands are all very, very closely connected through mm. language and culture and marriage. Well, thank you all very much. That was certainly <laughs> plenty you. enough oh, for, our, for our purposes. I love a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I love another cup of water. From BBC Radio 4, this is Breaking Mississippi the explosive inside story of one man's war against racial segregation in 1960s America. I knew the state of Mississippi would stop at nothing, including killing me. James Meredith's mission to become the first black student at the University of Mississippi triggers what's been described as the last battle of the American Civil War. It's a fight that draws in the KKK and even President Kennedy himself. Can you maintain this order? Well, I don't know. I, that's what I'm worried about. And we must fight! I thought, wow, this could be it. This could be the beginning of World War III. Now aged 89, James Meredith tells his story. I'm public radio journalist Jen White, and this is Breaking Mississippi. Available now on BBC Sounds. Hallo, hier ist eine Nachricht von Hannah und Natascha, die Co-Moderatoren des LUK-Podcasts Why I Move in Partnerschaft mit Nike. Wir machen eine Pause von unseren alltäglichen L-Rollen, um mit ein paar unglaublichen Frauen von Filmstars bis hin zu Modeikonen darüber zu sprechen, wie sie Bewegung in ihren wahnsinnig hektischen Alltag einbauen und vor allem, wie sie sich dabei fühlen. Außerdem werden wir von Nike-Coaches und Trainern hören, die ihre Expertentipps dazu geben, wie jeder Bewegung in sein Leben einbinden kann. Ich habe ein gutes Gefühl. Ich auch. Why I Move in Kooperation mit Nike. Jetzt anhören. Musik 